0: Thanks for listening to Dark Histories. Before we start, I just want to take a second to thank all the people who support the show and help make it sustainable, both on Patreon and by signing up to Audible via the Dark Histories affiliate link. You can find links to both of those in the show notes if you're interested, or you can help out just by sharing the show with people who you think might be interested, on social media or with all the good people you might know. Alright, let's get on with the episode. Cheers. In 1948, a man of around 45 years of age was found dead on Somerton Beach, on the outskirts of Adelaide, Australia. Sitting up as if staring out to sea, he was a man that until this day has no name and no cause of death. In 2013, new layers of intrigue were added, spurring renewed interest in the case, but the story of the Somerton man still remains a mystery. In this episode, we detail the case of what's often called simply, "Tamam Shud." should. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome Season 1, Episode 5. I'm Ben and this is Dark Histories. Today we're going to be having a look at the Somerton Man. This is a Belter of a case, and one that is probably one of the original mysteries that got me kind of back into mysteries i suppose as an adult i used to do a job as a care worker and uh, i'd have a lot of downtime where i'd just be sitting around doing nothing basically and i would just sort of get my phone out and read random internet just trawling the internet basically and i came across this case and and this is kind of yes it's kind of the the case that got me back into mysteries as an adult because you know as a kid and teenager i was all over it but I suppose it had been a little while so let's get straight into it this is To Man Should The Summerton Man Mystery On the morning of Tuesday the 30th of November a man arrived presumably by train in Adelaide train station he bought a ticket to Henley Beach Station one of only three tickets sold for that particular train that morning at around 11am he checked a brown suitcase into the cloakroom and instead of taking the train he had a ticket for, he decided to catch a bus from opposite the station to St. Leonard's in Somerton. At 7.15pm, John B. Lyons and his wife, Helen Lyons, were walking by the beach and they saw a man lying against the seawall, his feet crossed. He raised his arm before letting it fall limply. At 7.30pm, Gordon Straps and Olive Neill taking an evening walk along the beach Stop on a bench. Just below them, propped up against the seawall, they noticed a man apparently asleep. They joked between themselves that perhaps he could be dead. The sun was setting and mosquitoes were in the air, and yet he showed no signs of movement for the 30 minutes that they were there. However, the pair conceded that it's more likely that he's just a drunk and they decided not to investigate any further. The next day, on Wednesday, the 1st of December, at around 5.30am, Neil Day and Horry Patching, two jockeys taking an early morning walk with their horse along the beach, noticed a man sitting down, propped up against the seawall wearing an overcoat. They thought it strange that he was wearing an overcoat on such a nice morning, but they walked on by. At 6am as they returned and passed the man, they decided to stop and check if he was okay. Far from okay, they in fact found that the man was dead. Jack Lyons and Arthur Lee arrived on the beach from an early morning swim and saw the jockeys standing by the body and went to check on the commotion. Unsure of what they should do, Jack Lyons told the jockeys to leave it to them and they contacted the police. Lyons observed that the body was wearing dry clothes, with his mouth and eyes closed. There was no disturbance of sand and no debris or personal items around the body. His expression was as if he was sleeping with normal clothing, light stubble, and his feet crossed. At 6.45am, Constable John Moss arrived on the scene. He observed that the body was cold, damp, and stiff. He had an unsmoked cigarette behind his ear, his left arm down by his side, right arm, palm upwards, slightly out from his side, and he had a smoked cigarette butt between his cheek and his lapel, presumably fallen from his mouth. Upon inspecting the pockets of the body, he found a bus ticket, the unused train ticket to Henley Beach, two combs, one made of plastic and one from aluminium. He also found a packet of Juicy Fruit chewing gum, a box of matches and a pack of cigarettes containing cigarettes of a more expensive brand than the brand on the box. At 9.40am, the ambulance arrived, took the body to the hospital and he was pronounced dead by Dr. John Barley Bennett with his time of death estimated by the state of his rigor mortis as being around 2am earlier that morning. The pathologist was cited as stating that the man was of Britisher appearance and thought to be aged about 40-45. to He was in top physical condition, 180cm tall with hazel eyes, fair to ginger coloured hair, slightly grey around the temples with broad shoulders and a narrow waist. He was dressed in a white shirt, red and blue tie, brown trousers, socks and shoes, a brown knitted pullover and fashionable grey and brown double-breasted jacket. All the labels on his clothes had been removed and he had no wallet. Upon further police investigation, it was found that his teeth did not match the dental records of any known living person in any databases, nor his fingerprints, which were circulated internationally, but received no positive identifications. This may all seem very strange and indeed at the time the police found it to be unprecedented but the mystery of the Summerton Man was just beginning. The autopsy was carried out the next morning on the 2nd of December 1948. The coroner noted that there was no sign of violence and his heart was healthy. His organs were deeply congested with blood and mixed with the food in his stomach. His spleen was three times that of a normal human size though it was noted that this could possibly be from a pre-existing illness. No sand was found in the man's nose or mouth, but there was sand found in his hair and he had small abrasions in between his knuckles which extended to the back of his right hand. Although the body had been found with his head propped up against the seawall, large amounts of lividity was found at the back of his head, suggesting that his body had spent some considerable time after dying with the head in a quite different position. The lividity's concentration towards the back of his head and neck, suggesting a spell of time lying on his back. Toxicology tests for poisons or toxins came back negative, and no cause of death could be determined. The coroner commented that he was quite sure that the man had not died a natural death and suspected poisoning of some kind, though the food found in his stomach, that of a pasty estimated to have been eaten at around 11 pm on the night of his death, was not the culprit. As the police were yet to identify the body and they had no leads with which to work, it was embalmed for preservation on the 10th of December. Over the next few weeks, there were many positive identifications of the Somerton man reported in the media, though they were all dismissed after further investigation by police. Hard facts go quiet on the Somerton man for a short time, but on the 14th of January, Workers at Adelaide train station discovered the brown suitcase checked into the cloakroom on the morning of the man's death. The police checked the suitcase out of Adelaide station on the 14th of January 1949. It was brown in colour, new and unlocked. Inside they found a dressing gown, a pair of slippers, some spare thread, four pairs of underpants Pyjamas, shaving items, a light brown pair of trousers, an electrician's screwdriver, a table knife cut down into a short, sharp instrument, a pair of scissors with sharpened points, a small square of zinc which was thought to have been used as a protective sheath for the knife, and a stenciling brush. Identification marks and tags have been removed from the clothing, however, a tie, laundry bag and singlet were stitched with the name Keen and T-Keen. They also found three dry cleaning marks, though there were no men by the name of T. Keene reported missing in any English-speaking country, and no identification was made from the dry cleaning marks. The police did find, however, that the type of stitching in the jacket was that of a type only found in America, and being as how the jacket was made to measure, there was a very high likelihood that he was an American man or had spent significant time in the States. At the inquest on the 21st of June, the result was left inconclusive. Speculation from the coroners of poisoning was noted. In particular, poisons digitalis and ubain were both identified as being possible to kill a human and yet remain untraceable after death. A second doctor at the inquest, however, contradicted this statement. Dr. Robert Cohen stated that, I feel quite satisfied that if the death were caused by any common poison, my examination would have revealed its nature. If he did die from poison, I think it would have been a very rare poison. I think that the death is more likely to have been due to natural causes than poisoning. An unnatural death was finally presumed, though cause was unknown and there was no identification of the victim. The inquest was adjourned to Cinedie. A plaster cast of the dead man's head and shoulders were made for later attempts at identification and the body was finally buried with the headstone marking the plot. Here lies the unknown man who was found at Somerton Beach. The mystery of the man's body is buried in the earth. however, the true mystery is just beginning. Prior to the inquest, the coroner wrote to Sir John Cleland, professor of pathology at the University of Adelaide, asking for assistance. Upon his inspection of the body and the suitcase, Cleland made several key observations that the police had failed to note. Firstly, he found that the spare thread in the suitcase matched that of the clothing sewn into a repair on the lining of one of the pockets of the man's trousers, and that the brand of thread was rare to be found in Australia, tying the two together conclusively. He also noted that the man's shoes were remarkably shiny and recently polished, commenting that he did not think that the man would have walked onto the beach much, if at all. Finally, he found one last piece of key evidence in the case. Rolled up and stashed in a small fob pocket in the man's waistband was a small scrap of paper torn from a larger page. There was print on one side that read simply, ''Tamam should'', a Persian phrase meaning ''ended'' or ''finished''. Public library officials were called in to try to identify the printed text. They successfully identified it as the final phrase on the last page of a book known as the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. The Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam was a book of poems attributed to a Persian poet named Omar Khayyam, and translated by Edward Fitzgerald. It was a reasonably popular book at the time, however it would soon be found that this particular page had been torn from a very specific and rare copy. A photograph of the scrap of paper was released to the press and on the 22nd of July, a man went to the police with a copy of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, printed in Christchurch, New Zealand, in 1941, that he had found in the footwell of his car. There is some uncertainty as to the exact date of the book was found, however, the man stated that he had left his car parked with the window open and found the book either on the day that the Somerton man's body was found or some weeks prior. Regardless of this precise date, the book he handed to the police had the back page missing, and after microscopic tests, was confirmed to be the same paper with the tears matching that of the small strip found in the dead man's pocket. On the back page were faint indentations of handwriting, along with two telephone numbers, one of a bank and one unlisted, which turned out to belong to a nurse named Jessica Thompson. Jessica Thompson just so happened to live only 400 metres from where the body of the Somerton man was found. Jessica Thompson was contacted and interviewed by police. She claimed that she did not know the man, nor had any idea as to why he would be in her neighbourhood on the night of his death. Thompson stated that she had once owned a copy of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam but given it away as a parting gift to a man named Alf Boxall, an army lieutenant serving during World War II. For a while, the police speculated that Alf may be the identity of the dead man. Alf Boxall, however, was alive and well and he presented himself and his copy of the book to the police. This quickly shut down any further speculation. The police asked Jessica to see if she recognised the man from the plaster bust taken from the body prior to its burial. Upon seeing the bust, she was reported to have looked down at the floor, flustered, and as if she might faint, refusing to look at the bust again. Despite this behaviour, she nonetheless held tight to her story that she did not know or recognise the man. In later years after her death, interviews of Jessica's relatives, including her daughter Kate Thompson, were conducted. Kate told the interviewers that her mother had in fact known the identity of the man and that she had told her privately that she had lied to the police, and that the man's identity was known to people on a level higher than the police. She also told of her mother's ability to speak Russian, though she refused to tell her daughter where or why she had learned the language. The faint indentation of writing in the back of the copy of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam is one of the more puzzling aspects. On the final page was written five lines of text in capital letters. The second line is struck out, and at first glance, the whole thing resembles a possible code. At the time, it was sent to both the Navy and Defense departments. Neither were successful at deciphering any meaning, stating that there are insignificant symbols to provide a pattern. The symbols could be a complete substitute, code, or the meaningless response to a disturbed mind. It was not possible to provide a satisfactory answer. Modern analysis has been undertaken several times, and although still undecipherable, conclusions state that the letters are unlikely to be random, that the message is in English, and that it is likely that the Rubaiyat is a one-time pad. However, they do not think it will be a straight substitution one-time pad, leading to it being incredibly complex, and needing an exact same copy of the book to decipher it. After 60 years, the original has been destroyed, along with the suitcase, and much other evidence, and there are very few copies of the same book that have ever been found. The mystery of the summit man is multifaceted, starting with the body, the inconclusions about cause of death that are initially problematic. One doctor at the time was convinced of poisoning, whilst another was adamant that no poison was possible, and this was backed up by the fact that all toxicology results showed no sign of poisons. Items around or on the body are equally confusing. All identification marks, labels and tags were removed from clothing. Many of the articles were common in America rather than Australia. The aluminium comb, an item not made in Australia but common for American soldiers during the war, his jacket with the American style stitching, juicy fruit gum and the thread which tied the man to the suitcase. All of these things point to a man who was not an Australian national or at the very least, a man who had travelled extensively. Was his body dumped on the beach, or did he die in situ? If he died there on the beach, what of the pooling of the blood in the back of his head and neck? And what about his shoes, that were so clean that it was reported that he was unlikely to have been walking on the beach? And of course, there is the small fact that no record of the man's name, dental records or fingerprints exist. After looking at the autopsy photos of the Somerton man, Dr Macier-Hennenberg noted that the man's ears had an unusual formation, whereby the top of his ear, the Simba, was the same size as the bottom, the Kavum. This trait is known in only 1-2% of the Caucasian population. Derek Abbott, a professor at Adelaide University, later found that he also had hypodontia of both his lateral incisors. This was a rare genetic feature present in only 2% of the population. Derek Abbott obtained a photograph of Jessica Thompson's eldest son, which clearly showed that he had not only hyperdontia, but also the same larger symbol of the ear as the Somerton Man. The chance that this is a coincidence, and that Jessica's eldest son was not the child of the Somerton Man, is estimated to be between 1 in 10 to 20 million. In 2011, a woman contacted Maciej Hennenberg with an ID card issued by the United States to foreign seamen during World War II and that she had found in her father's possessions. The man on the ID card was named H.C. Reynolds and the photograph had several matching characteristics with that of the Somerton man, including a mole and the larger symbol of the ear. Hennenberg stated that, In a forensic case, This would allow me to make the statement positively identifying the Somerton man. The card was issued to the man, named H.C. Reynolds, in 1918. He was 18 years old and his nationality was British. Despite his official form of identification, no records relating to an H.C. Reynolds has ever been found in British, American, nor Australian national archives. So just who was the Somerton man, and what relationship did he have with Jessica Thompson? It seems highly likely that they had at least a personal relationship, but did they perhaps have a professional relationship too? Investigative work is continuing to this day in the hopes that we may one day find out. The most often touted speculation lies on the possibility that it was a spy, possibly with Jessica too. This was, after all, the beginning of the Cold War. The code remains a mystery that may hold many answers as to exactly what his business was in Somerton in December in 1948. As for his death, that will always likely remain a mystery. It seems easy to point to poisoning as the likeliest answer, but if so, who, why and how? Was he poisoned on the beach or killed elsewhere and dumped and posed by the seawall? The questions are many and the answers few making the Summerton Man one of the most intriguing cases in our dark history. It's a big one. I'm not quite sure how I managed to keep it so compact, actually. Obviously, I'm re-recording these earlier episodes, so there has been some work on this case since, and uh, we can discuss some of those kind of newer revelations, I
1: guess, after these short ads.
0: Ads are a pain in the butt, right? So do you want to know a good way to avoid listening to them? If you sign up to Dark History's Patreon, you get ad-free versions of the show with daily access to episodes, access to bonus content, stickers, exclusive discounts on the t-shirt store, and all that other good stuff. You get content from me, you get videos, I give like little running commentary and behind the scenes of how I make the show. And by being a member, you're directly supporting the show. You can sign up for as little as $1 per month, and you can help make Dark Histories the best it can be. For more information, check out our website at darkhistories.com, or pop over to the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash darkhistories. Right, enough of all that. Thanks for listening, and let's get back to the episode. So the Somerton Man, it's a fantastic case. And one that I think I hold kind of an unpopular view on now in that I sort of always believed that he was a spy. But that's an opinion, like that's a theory that seems to be sort of slipping by the wayside these days and people sort of less and less guessing that and saying he's sort of not so much a spy. But I I still think that he's a spy. I, I still buy that theory. I'm way too excited by the idea that he might have been some crazy Cold War spy. But there has been... I say I'm recording all of these episodes um, because of obviously my hardware has improved. So I want to go back and re-record them. And firstly, I'm amazed at how compact I kept the script. You know, if I'd have done this in sort of season three at some point, it probably would have been about, you know, three times as long. But secondly, there's obviously been sort of new things since since I wrote this that have come out about it because Derek Abbott, the professor from Adelaide University, is still kind of... It's, it's like an ongoing thing for him. He's actually married to a, uh, someone who's sort of involved with Jessica Thompson, I believe. Granddaughter of Jessica Thompson, maybe? And he continues to dig into the case and try and crack it. The code's been tried to be cracked a few times since and they've definitely found that it's in English. At the very least, they know that it's a code and that it's in English. That's about all they've kind of managed to figure out on that front, which is absolutely frustrating as hell because it's a great part to the mystery that there's this code that's staring us in the face that no one can solve, but it's infuriating that no one's been able to solve it. The other thing is is obviously Derek Abbott is, is constantly trying to get funding for um, exhumations and things like that so that he can get DNA analysis and and things like that and um, he's also, they found things like um, patches of hair on the bust um, that they've been able to use for DNA analysis or they think they can use for DNA analysis DNA analysis, sorry so there's that part to it as well, so there's I don't think there's been any great revelations since I, I wrote this originally, but it's certainly a case that's constantly moving. I say constantly moving. It's constantly moving in slow motion. You could perhaps say that. It's it's always sort of being caught up by legislation and funding. So, but I do think it's one of those cases where eventually we'll probably find the answers if Derek Abbott continues to go at it like he like he has been, and I think he probably will. So, yeah, I do think we'll possibly, maybe not the code, but we'll at least probably find out why the Somerton Man, or who the Somerton Man was, rather. I think that's probably something that we will one day find out. As to the code, I'm not so sure about that. That's been tried to be cracked several times. With the most modern kind of cloud computing sort of power behind it, it's still not been cracked. So the best they've kind of found was that it? it's uh, it's almost certainly in, it, in English and it is definitely a code and it comes from a one-time pad. That's about all they found of that code. So I'm not sure if that will ever get cracked, but at least by knowing who he was, we might know a little more about why he was there. My personal theory, I've got a kind of little pet theory, is that he was a spy and so was jessica thompson and he was they had some kind of relationship and he was visiting her as to why he would have got killed who knows but and how who knows again i i think it probably was poisoning but who knows you know it could have been something completely natural it's a fantastic mystery it really is it's one of those ones that i think until we find the answers it will just go forever because the amount of evidence we have is such a small amount that it's it's almost entirely speculation if you're going to try and devise a theory. And that's obviously, it's not factual and it's, it's not scientific, but it's a great deal of fun to kind of come up with a backstory for this man. I think eventually I could say, I think we'll probably find out the answers. But otherwise, yeah, I think, you know, we'll leave that episode there. So thanks for listening. If you'd like to find us on social media, we're everywhere. Um, Twitter, at Dark Histories. Instagram, dark underscore We have a Discord where you can come on and chat with each other. It's like a little community, and that's really nice. You can find links to all of that at darkhistories.com. And you can also find a um, uh, way to email me there if you'd like to contact me directly, which is uh, contact at But So if you go to www.darkhistories.com, You'll find links to everything, every way of contacting and following and subscribing and all the rest. So yeah, thanks for listening. It's been a pleasure. Sleep tight.